Warden. Welcome to the Heart to Mind Transformation Station, sharing stories related to the importance of building legacies that lead to greater health and wealth within your family. Come on, get on board. Welcome to today's episode of the Heart to Mind Legacy Transformation Station. I'm your host, Ellie Warden. The Heart to Mind Legacy programs are dedicated to sharing powerful personal and family legacies that help shape the uniqueness within our communities. In addition, we will provide insights on how and why every family should implement a plan to share vital information that leads to creating generational wealth. I'm here today with my co-host, Jerome Smart. Hi, Jerome. Hey, Ellie. How are you doing? Good. I'm fantastic. What's new in your world of insurance and real estate? Well, mortgage rates are rising, real estate supply is shrinking, and the size of the average mortgage in the U.S. has ballooned to an all-time high of $453,000. So, it's a good time to be in real estate, but a bad time to be getting into real estate. And, of course, real estate and insurance go hand-in-hand, so carrier insurance ratings are being upgraded, which means that premiums are increasing Reserves are increasing, and claims, while they may not be decreasing, they are uh, decreasing in a proportionate level to reserves. So it's a great time to be an insurance company, not so much to be an insurance consumer. Uh, It all means that there's less discretionary income for other needs and wants. Well, that's not... Humbug, everybody... Boo, Jerome, for the bad news. (laughs) That's right, exactly. But at least, Jerome, we know that these are important updates. And it is important that we stay on top of all of these changes going into these, these very vital industries because they do impact how generational wealth is created. That is so true. I agree with that. Well, you know, the theme of today's program is we don't talk about Bruno and other family business. I don't know about you and our guest uh, today, Deborah Carr, but if you have small children or grandchildren, you are probably familiar with that song from the Disney movie, Encanto, where they say, we don't talk about Bruno, Bruno. Bruno was a character whose legacy has been put in the closet and hopefully forgotten. Well, You know, I had to do some, nothing else, I had to do some homework and find out, uh, watch the movie Encanto. I know who Bruno is and I know his story, so maybe we'll have to stop using the term black sheep of the family and start calling those members Bruno instead. (laughs) That's a really good thing. That's excellent. Yeah, because that was the whole case that Bruno was really ostracized by the grandmother, hidden away, and really everything that happened around that family kind of centralized itself around this character, Bruno, and the fact that he had been hidden away. Once he was brought out into the open and the family could then respect him 
everything changed for them. And that's the good part about it. And it leads right into what we're going to talk about today. Um, We have our guest, Deborah Carr, professor of sociology at Boston University. And recently, Professor Carr wrote an article that is spot on with the information I have shared in my recently published ebook, Preparing for the Great Beyond, Transformational Practices that Create Family Legacies, which can be found on Amazon.com. Shameless plug. (laughs) Debbie, (laughs) welcome to our program. Oh, it's my pleasure to join you all. I couldn't believe it, Debbie. When I read your article that was entitled End of Life Conversations Can Be Hard, I felt Mm. as if you had read my ebook prior to it being published because it dealt with information gathering and why it is so important to talk about, quote unquote, Bruno. Now, I know what led to my urgency when I was writing Preparing for the Great Beyond, but what inspired you to write your article? Sure. Well, I'm a sociologist, so I've been studying death and dying for a long time, and I study grief. And I've often found that when people die, they have to manage the emotions of loss, but they also have to deal with really difficult practical issues about settling the estate. They have to sometimes make really hard choices about should mom or dad have life support? Should they have artificial nutrition and hydration? And these choices and decisions are so difficult. And they're most difficult for people who have never thought about them or talked about them. And so that inspires a lot of my work. And it inspired the essay. I think people are so worried to talk about death. They think it's going to upset each other. But it actually is a gift that we give to our families. It helps us all to prepare for the inevitable and to manage end of life as best as we possibly can. It's a way to kind of make lemons out of, you know, lemonade out of lemons at some level. That is really important because I know for myself, I went through that same type of scenario where I was the the deed beneficiary. I was the power of attorney. I was the uh, power of health attorney. You know, um, all of those things, they make a difference when you get down to the moment. And it's important to have all of that information in a place that is easy for people to access. It, it just doesn't, it, it can't be done any other way. Jerome, I know you probably have a lot of situations being in both real estate and insurance where you probably see a lot of this. Um, that is definitely a fact um, that, you know, I, I see a lot of people that are unprepared for end of life in, in their journey whenever, whenever they lose someone. But Dr. Carr, I did a little research on you as well, and you've been in this industry in the business so to speak, of and study of the end of life for decades. What was your catalyst? You know, what was the factor that brought you to this convocation? What triggered you and your passion in helping people deal with this transition in their lives? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's partly academic and partly personal. Um, I've always been a researcher of aging, and I'm interested in what are those things that can help us to age well or not so well. And part of that includes how is it that we can die well, and how is it that our family members can adapt to our death in a way that is not as difficult as it might otherwise have been. So there's kind of an academic interest, but I came to this topic easily, and I wasn't afraid to talk about death for personal reasons. Uh, My father got sick and died fairly young. 
And so my mom was widowed fairly young. And so that experience and the experience of seeing my high school classmates also have a mom or dad young kind of raised all these questions. You know, how do families cope if a death is sudden as opposed to a death that's so drawn out and you see your parents or grandparents suffer? So my own personal experience raised all these questions for me. And then when I became an academic, I had the tools and the platform to really study them and write about them in a systematic way. You know, that's interesting that you say that from an academic standpoint. I think I never really thought of it from an academic standpoint. I always saw it as an emotional standpoint or a business-oriented type of standpoint. But from an academic standpoint, when you really begin to break it down, there are different types of people and ways that people grieve. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think that's why we need these rigorous academic studies. And absolutely, our feelings are important. But I think if we want to do research that informs social policies, for instance, or that guides how it is that clinicians do their work, we need to have data. And you're absolutely right when you say that people grieve differently. You know, for a long time, there was the belief that people pass through these stages, right? The Kubler-Ross model. There was the expectation that all people would go through these same stages in the same order. And if you didn't go through those stages, then there was something wrong with you. And now the data show that there's no one right way to grieve. Some people may not be terribly grief-stricken, and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. Some might have their grief linger on for much longer periods, and it doesn't mean they need to snap out of it. Right. We grieve differently because the love or people that we're grieving, we, we have very different relationships with some good, some bad, some ugly. And so it's really important just to underscore that people's grief reflects not only how their loved one died, but what the relationship was like and what their other social ties are like to help them through the process. So that, those are some of the reasons why we need the research to really understand these differences and then develop specific ways to help those different types of grieving individuals. That is very you, true. And, oh, go on, Jerome. You know, oh, and there are a ton of resources out there to help people as they deal with this transition phase of their life. One of the uh, resources is theconversation.com. It's how we came into contact with Dr. Carl, an article that she published on that journal which is basically a forum for academics to provide uh, insight about a, a host of different topics. And uh, one, of the, um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you as well, Dr. Carr, is in your research, what have you, what have you found to be the hardest aspect of getting people to start and more importantly, to continue having that conversation about the end of life? That's a really good question. I think there are kind of two buckets. One has to do with kind of psychological factors, and then the other has to do with really practical issues. So one thing I found is that people who tend to have lower levels of income and wealth, those people who don't own homes, for instance, they don't have wills, right? Because they feel, well, I don't have any resources to, you know, to bequeath, so I don't need a will. But that also means they don't see a lawyer. They don't go to those professionals who would prompt the conversations about health-related planning and living wills. So there is something structural there, which means that we need to make sure that we have legal supports available for people at all levels of the economic ladder. So there's that factor. But then the other are kind of things that we've chatted about earlier, that there's a real emotional block for people in talking about death. 
And if you talk about it, people think you're gloomy. They think that you're kind of this weird person somehow. And I think we need to remove that stigma that death is a normal, natural part of life. And we need to talk about it. And raising these questions with your mom or dad doesn't mean you're after their inheritance. It doesn't mean you want them to die. It doesn't mean anything like that. Yeah. And I said, sometimes people are reluctant to talk about death because they think it will make them look gloomy or bleak. Some people actually are afraid to talk about death because they think they're going to jinx someone and bring on death. Others still feel if they raise the topic of death and dying, it looks like they're after their parents' inheritance. But none of that is true. Um, you know, the reason that we talk about death is to be prepared and to destigmatize it and to underscore that it's a normal, natural process of life, just like birth. And whatever we can do to prepare for it, just as we prepare for the birth of a child, will make the whole transition go more smoothly. And that's interesting. You brought up in that one sentence, everything that I'm talking about in my ebook, I call it the laugh formula, L-H-F-F, because if you don't take care of these areas, you won't be laughing at the end, trust me. But again, it stands for the legal, health, financial, and family concerns. Because when you really look at each of those areas, there is a long list of questions that need to be asked. For instance, Mm -hmm. when my mother passed away, it was very sudden, within an hour. And even though my daughter went to the hospital with her in the ambulance or behind the ambulance, I was in Baton Rouge at the time. They were in St. Louis. They could not get the permission to DNR, do not resuscitate, or intubate from my daughter because she was Mm -hmm. not the one who had the medical power of attorney like I did. They had to call me and then mm-hmm. I had to make that final decision. Thank goodness my mother and I had discussed this already. So it wasn't a decision. I was merely carrying out her wishes. And that is what people need to understand that those are the kinds of decisions that need to be made well in advance. The legal, just because you don't own a home, you may have other kinds of properties where that that might necessarily be the case. Let's say if it was a young person, they might have a Spotify account and they're blowing it up, you know, putting on mm-hmm. beats and things like that. And the family didn't even know that this person was actually making money from Spotify. Yeah, yeah. that's a very good, good perspective as a part of the whole planning process of end of life. Uh, Dr. Carr, what would you say to the person that says, I don't care what happens to me after death? I don't really have anything, and besides, I'm not going to be here to see it anyway. That's a a good question, and I think it's true. Some people might say, when I'm dead, I'm dead. I don't care, but when we die, most of us leave behind loved ones and family members, and from speaking with older adults, I know that the one thing people want when they leave this planet is to know that their children are still close that they still love each other, that they still get along. And so if someone dies without any kind of estate planning, that puts the burden on their children or their grandchildren. And we know from the data that sometimes there are family squabbles and sometimes families even become estranged if they disagree with each other regarding end-of-life decisions and certainly with inheritance. So if parents really want their legacy to be that their children are close and they remain a family, this kind of planning is essential to having the loved ones that one leaves behind have a cordial and loving and supportive relationship. 
that is key because there is life after death. There's the life of the survivors. And oftentimes mm-hmm. we really don't think about that. You know, we, we see everybody at the funeral, everybody is there, they're supportive, and they're all telling you, if you need anything, be sure to call me. Well, three weeks later, after the repast, the flowers have wilted, and the undertaker has been paid, guess who's still left handling the afterlife affairs? The person who has been designated as the agent. And trust me, the other people are nowhere to be found. They're already into whatever the next stage of their life is. But that's where you, as you kind of say, that's where the money is left on the table. Because if they don't know how to follow through, how to find where the money is, where the may they may not have had a, a bank account, but boy, they were hiding the money in the in the shoebox, yeah. or or you know they had a lot of jewelry, and now all of a sudden that jewelry is very beneficial to the family as a as a group. They can do things with that, you know. There's just so many things that people don't think about. What do they need to know? They need to know everything. But like Jerome said, sometimes it can be difficult to get that conversation started because it's not like, well, hey, Granny, tell me everything about yourself. It can't be that way. How do you really open the door? What can you say to someone that says, I'm having a hard time talking to my grandma about this? What's the first thing I should say to her? Yeah, that's that's an important question. I usually say it's kind of like that old ad campaign, just talk to your kids about drugs. Kind of just talk to your older loved ones about end of life issues. And I think one way to raise the conversation is very gently just say, you know, there, there's something that's been on my mind. You know, I know none of us are going to live forever. And you can even refer to a friend who had a difficult time. You know, my friend found that when his mom died without a will, it caused all kinds of problems for the family. Um, they were tied up in legal red tape for months. And I want to make sure... <clears throat> that we can live by your wishes and stop those things from happening. So really proposing it as something like, is there a conversation we can have that will help us? And really putting it in that way, making it feel not like a burden and letting the older person who's dying know that this conversation is hard, but it really will benefit their loved ones or ways to first open up that conversation. Very much so. You know, memorials, funerals, home goings, whatever term we use to speak to that gathering of family and friends, it brings us all together. And beyond just being a time, a great time to reflect on the lives of our lost loved ones, it's a great time to start that conversation and to um, you know, address the mortality of our existence and the importance of ensuring that our story is not one of pain, infighting, GoFundMe, uh, or any of those related frustrations that you know we can and we should be working on creating a legacy. And that is a great time to start having that conversation if you haven't already had it. Well, Jerome, it's yeah, interesting yeah. that you bring that up too because I did interview in the book, An Undertaker. And I asked him point blank, I said, what is it that you're looking for? And the first thing he said he was looking for was the will. He said, I need to know what desires were of the of the um, deceased. And it also helps to tell the undertaker who's in charge. 
because the last thing you want to have is another child that was, you know, from another marriage, whatever situation, relationship, however that played out, all of a sudden showing up and wanting to take over. That can be a, a tremendous stress on everyone. And I had kind of recommended that people just kind of begin to massage this conversation gently. Maybe go out and have a cup of coffee together first. Explain what the process is and the importance of it, like Debbie says, so that they understand we're not trying to get into your business. We're not trying Mm -hmm. to steal from you. What we're trying to do is make sure that after you pass, that the rest of the family is able to continue to live in a manner that you would want us to live. Yes, we're going to grieve, and that is natural, but we shouldn't be fighting three weeks after we've grieved all on top of each other, and now all of a sudden we're fighting over who gets the the car, who gets the house, who gets the jewelry, who gets the fur, who gets the, you know, all of those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. because they do leave harsh memories that linger for a long time. Yeah, and I think that's an important point you make. It's part of legacy making, right? People want to leave a legacy behind, whether it's memory, whether it's things that they give to their children. And I think most people want to die as they lived, right? So someone whose identity is tied up with being a really loving mom or really supportive dad, they can continue doing so through these instruments. They can protect their family by having a will. They can stop siblings from squabbling if they appoint one to be the designated decision maker. And so you can think about it as that as well. People are kind of living out their identity and being their true selves through these processes. It allows them to die on their own terms. And, you know, we think about the legacy conversation after the person has passed away, but it is so important to make sure that that last memory that you have of your loved one is a legacy memory as well. Uh, To that end, you know, my wife and I, we are actually in our will and our trust. We've actually planned and we're planning our final home going ceremony. And with people, if not necessarily specific individuals, but the types of conversations that we want to have expressed during that home going uh, you know, something, someone that addresses your professional life, someone that addresses your organizational or your philanthropic life, uh, someone that addresses your family life, it creates the legacy of how a person can be remembered or should be remembered, as opposed to just saying, we're going to give a few minutes for someone to come up and speak on their memories of this person and have everyone looking at each other saying, well, we really don't know if we should get up and say something or we don't know what we're going to say if we do. It, it's a part of that plan of creating that legacy. Yeah, and that's such an important thing to do, that asking people to help plan their funeral or their service, right down to what do you want to wear, what favorite piece of music, which photo, who do you want to speak? And you're absolutely right. It's better to have that all pre-programmed than to awkwardly look around the room and see if someone's bold enough to give an impromptu speech, right? And this is a way really to plan a party for yourself. You just can't be there. But you can help your family members to celebrate your life in a way that is fitting. That is very true what you just said. You're planning your own party, but you won't be there. And it makes me think about that I know for myself, I want everybody to have a great time. I want them to remember me for the fun and loving person that I am and 
hopefully that if I pass in my sleep, that everyone would, you know, the next morning they would say, oh my goodness, what a beautiful spirit. What, you know, that would be the things that they want to talk about. Yeah, Yeah, Ellie, you know, I always have a joke. I have a little joke that says, uh, Smarty had a party and no one came. Well, they... My home going, it's like Smarty had a party and he didn't come, but everybody else did. <laughs> Especially for the repast. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Debbie, you also wrote another paper um, in addition to the article, and you shared that with us as well. It's an academic paper. Could you share just a few of the, the salient points about that paper? Again, why did you write it? Yeah. The woman I wrote about how end of life is a life stage, just like childhood, just like adolescence. And I wrote that as a way, again, to kind of destigmatize death and make it a topic that people could prepare for and talk about just as they prepare for any other stage. So if you think about children, right, there are things children do to prepare to be teenagers and to prepare to be adults, right? They learn about how to be a mom or dad. They learn about job skills. And these are things we do early to help protect us and prepare us for what comes next. And I think the same can happen for that end-of-life stage. Um, Even though there are many sudden deaths, most people still die long-term chronic illness, meaning once they get sick, they know they have some time in the future to plan. And there are things we can do to prepare for end-of-life, even when we're relatively young, We can model what other people do. We can make choices so that we die on our own terms. And I think if we get these conversations, again, happening early and often, it will destigmatize it. It will make it less scary or less gory, however people think about it. And it will take away those walls that just don't need to be there because those walls are counterproductive and they don't help people. They are counterproductive. And you're absolutely right, Debbie. Jerome, it's really crystal clear. That if families are interested in creating generational wealth by tapping into their family's legacy, they need to start talking about Bruno and all the other hidden facts that could enhance their generational wealth. Since I saw Encanto as a part of my homework, I understand, you know, the burdens that Bruno was carrying for a family. And, you know, whenever thing came to light, the reality is, Bruno was a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And we can all be a part of the solution for our families and our legacies, just as long as we don't view each other as a part of the problem. Ah, very well said. And Debbie, why don't you have a closing response to that? I I think we've been talking a lot about kind of generational wealth and money. And I think that's absolutely important to have wills and to think about what one wants to give to the next generation. And one other tip I have is to help them to participate in it. I think oftentimes I've seen this happen with families. They'll have the children or grandchildren come to the home and they'll give them red stickers, blue stickers, green stickers, and they put stickers on the things that they would like someday to inherit. And so in that way, it's not this kind of just top down process, but it really engages the whole family. So I think that's one important tip that we might be able to give our listeners And the other is, even though we're talking about money, another really important resource is time. And this is something that we've touched on throughout our conversation today. But if someone dies without a will, for instance, then their family members have to spend a whole heck of a lot of time on administrative and legal red tape. And that time takes them away from 
paid work, some child learning, some hobbies, some exercise, some eating healthy foods. And so if we think about gifts, not only of money and wealth, but also the gift of time and peace of mind, those messages might impel more people to engage in these types of preparation. That was very well said, Deborah. And all of a sudden, the light went on. <laughs> you are so <laughs> right. This is what we should be doing. And we need to start making an effort to make that conversation happen and make it happen today. Debbie, I want to thank you so much for coming on our program today to discuss this vital topic. I don't know how much more we could continue to say to people, but again, we have to continue to say it because a lot of people really just don't know that if they don't do that homework ahead of time, it will be a moment of grief. It'll be a long moment of grief. And we would like to help people not to have to go through so much pain. But again, there is that legacy that needs to be not only created, but sustained. Well, I thank you, Jerome, for being my co-host, Debbie, for being a wonderful guest today. And I'd like to thank each of our listeners for tuning in to today's episode of the Heart to Mind Legacy Transformation Station. I ask that you tune in next Wednesday as we discuss the legacy of voting rights and how the current attempts to derail this important right affects women. Until then, take care. This has been the Heart to Mind Transformation Station. I hope you enjoyed today's program. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Tune in again next week.